You're listening to Distilling Theology. I'm Blake. And I'm Justin. And this is a podcast pairing discussions of theology and distilled spirits. And dad jokes. Amen. What's wrong with you people? You're not David. I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Fatality. You know, starting a podcast about theology and distilled spirits is whiskey business. (laughs) I said that with a straight face. This is Distilling Theology. Welcome to episode 46 of Distilling Theology. I'm your host, Blake Courtright, joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Justin Van Riper. How's it going, buddy? How was the Lord's Day today? It was overwhelmingly blessing. Hmm. Uh, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. We dove into First John, um, did a little introduction, talked about the Gnostics, talked oh. about the deity of Christ, and I am very, very excited to continue to dive in. Uh, mm. What about you? Dude, it was delightful to gather with the saints bodily, <clears throat> and uh, we started, we're, we're in transition. We just finished up the book of Romans. We're going to be starting the book of Isaiah, but because of the holidays and everything, um, the pastoral team is going through some psalms right now. Which on the surface sounds, you know, when you read a psalm that's only five verses, you're like, how can you fill up, you know, 40-minute sermon? But man, Psalm 100 this week, amazing. So yeah, good. Boy. Call yeah, to boy. worship, uh, all the divine imperatives, all of these calls to the people. Um, basically the whole gospel, the whole like life of Thanksgiving of the Christian. It was like so, so full. So good. It was uh, soulful. Oh, you know, it's, it's fitting for tonight's limited engagement uh, because we are going to be talking tonight about the L in Tulip, the one that's probably the most controversial. And so we will yep. lace it with as many dad jokes as possible, probably <laughs> uh, to atone for our terrible uh, attempts to explain the verses you have. Uh, yeah. No, I don't think you understand. All. I said all the verses. Uh, and that reference, Justin, why are we why are we quoting uh, Ron Swanson? Listen, I am super pumped tonight. We are drinking the Lagavulin 11-year Nick Offerman edition. Nick Offerman plays the lovely Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec. Uh, we are not necessarily endorsing that show by any means, but uh, I certainly love the character and I love... Lagavulin whiskey, and so Wait, you're going to get some Swanson references. Did you just say you love Lagavulin? I do. I love it. Is this a? Is this the one where Justin becomes a peat head? <laughs> it's not. It will not overtake Belvini. I'm sorry. Mm, give it time. <laughs> uh, speaking of time, this whiskey was in the cask for 11 years. It is bottled at 96% alcohol by volume. Are you sure about that? Or no, no, it is not. It is bottled at 46% alcohol by volume. Or 92. I was going to say, wow. <laughs> Get ready. We are not going to be able to stay in our chairs the moment we sit this. Uh, so yeah, 11 years, 46% alcohol by volume. Clearly a reference to the 46 high peaks in the Adirondack Mountains. Of course, naturally. Uh, and the 46ers film uh, made by yours truly. Plug, plug, plug. Okay. This was aged <laughs> for 11 years in refilled and rejuvenated American white oak casks. Uh, for Patreon, I may I may include some of this in the episode, but here's from the back of the box. Blake, uh, did you say 46 high peaks? Oh, I did. It's weird that my fifth book is written about 46 high peaks. Uh, anyway, carry on. Plug, plug, whoa. plug. <laughs> it is the season. So this is uh, the Offerman edition of Lagavulin, aged 11 years. I'm not going to read in his voice. I'm probably going to accidentally slip into a Ron Swanson impersonation. <laughs> Whoever said be sure to stop and smell the roses must have never tried Lagavulin. For my part, I say a well-crafted life is one in which your whiskey is poured when you have ample time to savor it. When the day's work is done and you can take the time to properly imbibe the robust goodness in your dram. Well, it puts the smelling of flowers... Of any stripe to shame. At Offerman Woodshop, I select my various wood species for their strength, density, and rich visual beauty. With the discernment, I have also applied to my choice of single malt. For this Lagavulin Offerman edition, I am grateful that my passion for wood has been brought to bear by utilizing refilled and rejuvenated American white oak casks in the maturation process. The romance begins with an initial whiff of peppery green apple. Oh, we're getting into the tasting notes. Hold on. Oh, <laughs> the brakes. So there's a whiff of peppery green apple. What else do you smell? 
Well, I definitely smell peppery green apple. Look, Nick Offerman said, I actually, I I do notice that now. Like, that's the first thing that's standing out to me because I read it and now I can't unsee it. It's kind of amazing. So aside from your typical smoke and uh, oak uh, Mm. notes that you're going to get from something like really any Lagavulin. Yeah. There's also some honey sweetness. Definitely some of that orchard fruit. Yeah, man. This is a perfect fall dram. Oh, Today was a perfect so fall day. Dude, it was beautiful. 70 degrees and sunny. I broke a rake. I was raking so oh. much I broke it. <laughs> it was awesome. Oh, I'm Man trying to work. think of a good joke for that, but it, it didn't land. So here we are. I do get the black pepper as well. Um, the honey. It's very, yeah. It's honestly it's a not bit, as smoky on the nose as I thought it was going to be. It's a little bit more like pointed and specific than mm. um, than our last. Oh, uh, for sure. Were. You want me to read the rest of Nick Offerman's aroma notes? Please. The romance begins with an initial whiff of peppery green apple, followed swiftly by a jitterbug of stewed berries. The tangy spice from the handmade charred cast perfectly couples in a tango with the peaty burnt embers feature characters, featuring a sensation on the nose reminiscent of your favorite campfire. Then he starts to get into the taste, but we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, I, I, so I bought a bottle of this from a friend of mine who owns a liquor store, um, and I was really blown away by it, to be honest. So it's been a while since I've like sat down to taste it, but I'm excited. We're like last week, I was pretty underwhelmed by the nine year. Um, like I said, I, I I would I would sip it again, but it's not going to be my first choice. Um, sure. This is quite good. Also, Nick Offerman approves. So, you know, there's that video of him sipping Lagavulin by the fire for an hour, mm. not saying a word. Yeah, that's the um, that's his holiday yeah. uh, special. The um, a couple of Yule friends log, of mine. Yeah. yeah, a couple of. Yeah, his Yule, his Yule log. Um, a couple of friends of mine planned on sitting around the television with Nick Offerman sipping Lagavulin. For an hour. Got to make that happen. Distilling theology video exclusive <clears throat> idea right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zoom. let's dive in, dude. Let's do I'm it. Excited. Cheers, brother. Yes. Mm. That green apple stays through the whole flavor. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's, it's a bit more creamy than I anticipated. Yeah. But it's dry. It's, yeah. It's very dry. Yep. The very sides of my mouth are what's getting the watery kind of mm-hmm. juiciness. Um, <clears throat> and it kind of takes a minute, but then that smoke kind of billows back up a bit. Yeah. I get the I get the charred oak yep. throughout, which dries. It's very tannic, like a like a really dry red wine through the it, middle. But it's mouth-watering it's, on the sides. It's like having... It's like eating an apple in an apple orchard while sitting by the fire. <laughs> mm. <laughs> on yeah. a fall night. It's yeah, really good. This oh, is really good. I forgot how good this was. Man, I could just sit with that. Like, man, I'm still like the I'm still getting finish from uh, that first sip. The smoke is still billowing up, which is so very the, characteristically like a balloon. Oh, absolutely. The second sip is kind of giving me almost like a buttery sort of sweetness. A little bit, a little bit of salt, maybe some not quite mm. as sea salty as the other. Mm-hmm. Um, is the nine year or the, the eight year, but this is <clears throat> a little bit more balanced, I think. Yeah, some salted pork, as it were. Yeah, 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 yeah. A little bit man, of a toss up between this and the eight. Mm. Those are both very good. Yeah. Oh man. I don't think this is quite as like the eight seems a little more, more complex. Focused. Yeah. Yes. But where this is focused, it's so good. Yeah. Like yeah. green apples. Honey roasted pork with a little bit of sea mm-hmm. salt, some black pepper, yeah. camp smoke, uh, oak, you know, charred oak, like, yeah, a little bit of honey, yeah, like that honey. Oh man, or maybe 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 honey roasted ham with sea yeah. salt. I don't so know what you're like, saying is the the flavor profile for this is a little bit more limited. Oh, I like <laughs> what you did there. You got a a tome for our other dad jokes. <laughs> 
<laughs> so tonight we're going to dive into the L of Tulip. Mm. We're going to be touching limited atonement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by no means exhaustive. However, uh, we want right. to cover it, obviously, as we... It's a limited amount of time. <laughs> oh, did you want me to read the rest of his notes real fast? Oh, yeah. The flavor? Hop on there. To taste, the woody, peaty notes lead from the front, gently tingling the tongue in a cha-cha before fading to reveal a veritable waltz of sweet berry and orchard fruit notes. The familiar Lagavulin distillery characteristics step forth, presenting aromatic peat with every sip. A few moments after the liquid has gone, the peaty essence remains, characterizing a wonderfully energetic flamenco finish from a, uh, I can't even say the word, liquid uh, with an unmistakable panache for which I am tickled to write a box copy. It looks great in a tutu to boot. This 11-year Lagavulin is like a top-shelf brass band blowing smoky jazz and marching straight down your gullet. <laughs> I love Nick Offerman's writing so, so much. So beautiful. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. So yes, we have a limited amount of time to talk about limited atonement tonight. Yeah. But we're yeah, Blake, definitely what... going to talk about it. <laughs> Blake, why don't you, uh, before we, well, let, before we jump into anything, let's yeah. break out the Valley Vision as per usual and open with prayer. <laughs> Um, as you can imagine, folks, uh, if you turn to page 88, we're going to be praying, uh, along with the Puritans on election. Um, considering we're talking about a limited election, a limited atonement, as it were. So pray with us if you have your, if you have your copy. I know many of you do. Holy Trinity. All praise to thee for electing me to salvation by foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. I adore the wonders of thy condescending love, marvel at the true believer's high privilege, within whom all heavens, heaven comes to dwell, abiding in God and God in him. I believe it. Help me experience it to the full. Continue to teach me that Christ's righteousness satisfies justice and evidences thy love. Help me to make use of it by faith as the ground of my peace and of thy favor and acceptance so that I may live always near the cross. It is not the feeling of the Spirit that proves my saved state, but the truth of what Christ did perfectly for me. All holiness in him is by faith made mine, as if I had done it. Therefore, I see the use of his righteousness for satisfaction to divine justice and making me righteous. It is not inner sensation that makes Christ's death mine, for that may be delusion, being without the word, Mm. but his death apprehended by my faith, and so testified by word and spirit. I bless thee for these lively exercises of faith, for the righteousness that is mine in Jesus, for grace to resign my will to thee. I rejoice to think that all things are at thy disposal, and I love to leave them there. Then prayer turns holy into praise, and I can all I can do is adore and love thee. I want not the favor of man to lean upon, for I know that thy electing grace is infinitely better. Amen. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Always so good. It is. Blake, why don't you tell us a little bit about <laughs> limited atonement? What does that mean? Sure. Basically, it means God picks favorites and uh, keeps people out. And I'm just kidding, uh, obviously. So that's what's often caricatured, right, by limited atonement in Calvinist circles. Uh, it is often viewed as this inexcusably harsh doctrine that does damage mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the character of God. Uh, to quote from Roger Olson's book, Against Calvinism, this doctrine makes God what he would call a moral monster um, mm. because God is limiting the scope of his uh, efficacious saving grace, which we'll get into next week, um, by applying it only to a finite number of sinful people and uh, by extension, definitively excluding the rest of mankind. <gasps> so um, limited atonement basically is the doctrine the doctrinal point within this soteriological system that defines the scope of the atonement, if you will. Or mm-hmm. So we've talked about man's total depravity or moral inability or total inability, right, to choose God and that God must do the saving. 
we've talked about God's unconditional election, that God is choosing a people for himself with no view of what those people will do or what they are, because all that he will see is dead bones, and he is doing it solely on the basis of his own grace. And now we're talking about the scope of that atonement. Is it universally applied? And last week we rejected that, obviously, because the Bible rejects that view of universalism. Yeah. So what are we left with, right? What are we saying is that God is unconditionally choosing a people to call to himself, and he is choosing a set number of people, a specific number of people. We'll get into some text in a little minute here, but a lot of Calvinists don't like the term limited atonement. We find it, um, it, mis- it, it can often be used to, mis- to emphasize the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, they speak to you. I, I, I prefer this term. I know a lot of other people prefer the term definite atonement, um, which is more to the, the spirit of what this piece of doctrine is about, right? It is that the atonement is a definite, a sure thing for God's elect. It is not a, a flippant or a wishy-washy point. Sure. And it is a definite number as well, but definite has a different, uh, in English at least, it comes across differently than the word limited. Um, now, Justin, from an Arminian, a Wesleyan Arminian background, what is this idea of prevenient grace, which is often yeah. thrown up against this doctrine from an Arminian camp? Right. So if you don't believe in limited atonement, but you are a Christian, you have to do something with grace, right? Uh, what is grace? What is this amazing grace we speak of? What is this grace that the scripture speaks of? Uh, and so the more Arminian and, and the very Wesleyan view uh, mm-hmm. on God's grace would be called prevenient grace, um, also known as enabling grace. Um, and it's essentially a Christian theological concept that's rooted, uh, of, of course, in Arminian theology. Um Although it is worth noting that it did appear earlier in Catholic and even Anabaptist theology, just FYI, uh, two theologies we would hardcore reject. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's essentially this idea that divine grace, uh, it still precedes human decision, uh, but Mm. in other words, God's will starts showing love to that individual at a certain point in his lifetime. Um, But basically what that does is it gives the, the person the ability in some capacity to freely choose uh, to turn to God uh, of their own free will. Mm-hmm. So there's an important distinction to be made there. Uh, I know you Presbyterians love to distinguish. Uh, there's a big, big distinguishing thing there. It's this idea that God gave us free will uh, in in order for us to um, exercise free will in a way that can be pleasing to God. He provides provenient grace uh, to some degree, um, but it's still essentially uh, conditional in that you must act and it's synergistic in nature. So you must do something in order for God to then save you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But that it's this prevenient grace that I find nowhere in scripture that he's provided uh, that allows you to do that. It's, it's kind of a weird thing and it leads to all kinds of, I think erroneous ideas like this, like uh, which again, we'll touch on in other uh, parts of tulip like with sure. perseverance of the saints you know this idea of the yeah. holy spirit coming in and going out and coming in and going out because you know you can choose so all kinds yeah. of stuff but um yeah uh that's that's kind of what they do with with grace essentially yeah and the other thing that i want to i rc Sproul pointed this out and i've never been able to un, unsee this he's <laughs> like because i was very staunchly like synergistic i wouldn't necessarily call myself an arminian yeah. at the time yeah. but i was very synergistic i was like but i was listening i was curious and I thought this doctrine yeah. was just the worst thing I'd ever heard of. And Sproul said, well, you know, um, just FYI, everybody, unless you're a universalist, everybody limits the scope of the atonement. Mm-hmm. The atonement is only uh, applied, if you will, or is only effective uh, to certain people. Now, why those people are chosen, you know, why those people are, are chosen is where we differ, right? But, but Arminians limit the atonement. Oftentimes, even if they even if they would say that everybody has an equal opportunity, which I think any consistent Arminian would would say that's not actually the case, because you have to believe the gospel, you have to hear and believe the gospel, so that automatically excludes a lot of people. There's a lot of Arminians though that wouldn't, yeah, affirm that, unfortunately. But I think that's I think part of that is a result of their erroneous soteriology, right? This, sure. This idea that, well, you know. You don't necessarily have to hear the gospel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, what? what? <laughs> right. Sure. And I mean, we as Calvinists would say, obviously, God can do any, God can do whatever he wants. Amen. He can work supernaturally. And we alluded to this uh, a week or two ago. It's like, 
God can do what he wants, but the normative way and that we know as faithful believers mm-hmm. is the preaching of the word, right? That's, that's like, that's the thing. So that's what we're supposed to do. But, um, so, but oftentimes we would speak of the atonement being limited in scope as far as the number, the numerical value of people that it's affecting mm-hmm. or in effect. So Arminians limit the effect of the atonement to say it is a potential atonement available to all mankind equally, sure. not indiscriminate and equally available to all people, but it is not, it does not take effect unless they grab hold of grace. And right. so in that scheme, the atonement is in one sense universalized, uh, which mm-hmm. it, again, depends who you talk to, but in, in one sense, theoretically, the atonement is available equally to all people. Well, yeah, but, it, you get, yeah. you get to that same, you get to the kind of the two different versions of the same story where, a person's either in the ocean swimming and drowning and God's gone and tossed his little life preserver. Hey, all you got to do is grab on, mm-hmm. uh, which is essentially provenient grace. He's provided the life preserver, but it's conditional. You got to act, boy. Or <laughs> you're actually what scripture says, dead in your sin. And a dead man can do nothing to save themselves. They're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then God takes you up out of the bottom of the sea and breathes mm-hmm. life into you. Yeah. Well, then that's right. The Calvinist view is that the atonement is absolutely efficacious. Mm-hmm. Jesus' death absolutely did accomplish what he definitely set to do for his definite people. But it is, quote unquote, limited in that it does not apply or is not equally distributed to all people. And yet, as we discussed last week, there's no injustice in God. God would be perfectly just to punish all of man, all of fallen man for all of fallen man's sin. And so the fact that he has mercy on whom he wills, Romans 9, and he hardens whom he wills, is his divine prerogative. And who am I to answer back to God and to say, why have you made me this way? Right? Right. So anyways, so that's it, right? Arminians limit the effect of the atonement. Calvinists limit the scope. And that's a little bit of a crass way to talk about it, but it's helpful for this kind of preliminary discussion. And as I said, I, I still, I'll probably mention it again, but um, read the companion books from, from Mike Horton and Roger Olson for and against Calvinism. Um, you may come away frustrated reading both of them. But I think you'll have a well-rounded view. Personally, obviously, I agree more with Horton. I find his, his argument more compelling. Naturally. But I think Olson is intelligent. I don't think he's a fool. Um, and I think he's a brother in Christ. And he and Mike Horton have had decades of friendship, uh, despite very sharp disagreement on this point. So it shows that Armenians and Calvinists can be friends. And we can still disagree and call each other out where we find disagreement with the text. So uh, I commend it to you. Anyways, as we're getting into this limited discussion, Justin uh, helped flesh out the notes this week a little bit. So we are reading from the uh, the latter day confession. As it <laughs> you mean the the updated version of the first uh, confession? It's definitely uh, later on. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So if we turn to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, you go to um, reformedstandards.com. Yes, this is the way. Dude, this Lagavulin is so good. It's dude, it's phenomenal. <laughs> this this um, might be this might be better than the eight. I don't know. Because it's so it's so focused on what it's doing. Like you know what eight, we need it, to do? <laughs> side by side comparison. <laughs> Bonus video. Not today though. <laughs> Anyways. Sorry, I just um, got really distracted by how delicious this scotch was. <laughs> Carry on. It it is it is very, very good. Um no, if we if we turn to um, sixteen eighty nine 3.3, so Article Three of the Third, I don't even want to call it chapter. We'll go a chapter. We'll do that. We'll call it a chapter this week. Um, there's there's a couple of sections here, all that talk specifically about this, um, and it starts off this way: by the decree of God for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And others, this is important, being left to act in their sin, to their mm. just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Mm. Continues on, these angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly <laughs> hey. and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Um, so I think in that particular uh, second portion there, it's important to recognize that the reason it's not going to be increased or diminished is because God was efficacious on the cross. And so he mm-hmm. is going to save all whom he intends to save. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, you end up with your alternative limitation of the atonement. Yeah. Um, mm. But yeah, so we'll, we'll carry on. And again, there's a lot of if you have if you don't have a confession, please get one. You'll see all the scripture that's associated with these doctrines, yeah. um, and there's a ton. Um, but anyway, it continues on. Those of mankind that are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable or unchanging purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love. Again, it's non-conditional, unconditional. There's not something that you must do first without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto. Um, that's super important, right? Mm. It's not as though God saves us and nothing is required, right? We recognize faith and repentance are required. Mm. They're absolutely a requirement of our salvation. However, that faith and that repentance, Scripture says, is a gift that is given to the believer, right? right? We would say, logically speaking, regeneration precedes faith, right? So in order for us to be enabled to have faith... Because like Romans says, we are unable to, we cannot do anything that pleases God in the flesh. For us to be able to be enabled to have faith and repentance, we must be regenerate. Our, our stone heart must be replaced with the heart of flesh. Um, and then this last portion here. Uh, God hath appointed the elect unto glory. So he hath by his, by the eternal and most purpose, free purpose of his will. If you want to talk about free will, folks. Mm-hmm. This is where you'll find it. God's free will. Foreordained all the means thereunto. So he 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 not only uh, foreordained the ends, but also the means. Wherever they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by the Spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation, Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So, God's salvation of his people is definite. Mm. It was effectively accomplished on the cross. Mm. Amen. And all things are happen according to the counsel of God's goodwill. And if that's true... If total depravity is true, um, <laughs> you know, if unconditional election is true, limited atonement must be true. Mm-hmm. You cannot have proper total depravity, uh, an understanding of that, mm-hmm. a proper understanding of total depravity, and um, and not have limited atonement. Sure. Again, um, I mean, yeah, I, I could go on and on. Uh, go on. Give me something. <laughs> all, all I was going to say is, you know, on the one hand, you have this idea of prevenient grace, right? God is basically throwing out this general invitation of this grace that people can either choose to assent to or not. And in certain Armenian theologies, again, there's a lot of spectrum within synergism. So there's some versions that get more extreme than others. But the general view that I've encountered is that... God looks from, from eternity past. This is how they reconcile Ephesians 1, right? In him you were predestined uh, before the foundations of the world, right? Uh, what does that mean? Well, the Arminian <laughs> view would say, well, God, you know, before the world was made, he looked all the way to the future and saw all those who would respond to provenient grace. And on the basis of watching that response of faith, he chose them in Christ because they were choosing to be in Jesus. Now, the problem is, it's not what the verse says, mm-hmm. but you have to read it that way to avoid a monergistic or God only working or one working uh, way of reading the Bible. Because if you so so that's the question, right? Is it prevenient grace with this like uh, extensive foreknowledge view, or is it God's free election based on His own choice, His own will, His own immutable, wise, holy counsel? Uh, as the Westminster and the London Baptist Confessions articulate. Is it on the basis of God and his own decision-making, or is it on the basis of God watching what we're going to do and deciding right. in response to us? Now, we can look through the text, and we're going to look at a couple verses, but I personally, just on the very face of it, I find the Calvinistic perspective much more persuasive. 
biblically. It fits far more cohesively with the God that we see revealed to us in Scripture. And as Bobbing says in the Wonderful Works of God and in his dogmatics, like we, he, he refers to, the, to Christianity as a, uh, a revealed faith or a faith that is based, uh, if you will, epistemologically or like how we know what we know on revelation. So everything that we know scriptural or about our faith and, and practice and life comes from the revealing that God has done by the Spirit, that the, you know, the Father by the Spirit through the Son has done in his word to us. Um, and so on the basis of that revelation, right, consistent with God's character, consistent with his justice, with his mercy, consistent with his um, immutability, with his sovereignty, uh, limited atonement or definite atonement makes the most sense. We'll dig into a couple passages here, but you want me to read this one in Acts or do you want to tackle that? What you got? Um, well, I, I wanted to turn first to John 6. Ooh, um, yeah, good idea. John 6, if you, if you go through it, I mean, you can almost see all of, all of Tulip played out in just a couple of verses. But mm-hmm. um, if, you ch- if you turn to John 6, um, I'll start at verse 43. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is talking to the Jews who are grumbling Uh, basically. And he answers them and he says, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws me. Okay. That's (laughs) what is that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So so we're already starting with tulip here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Unconditional election. Right. Uh, And I will raise him up on the last day. So Mm -hmm. it's not, first of all, it's not, um, he he might raise you up. (laughs) Right. It's, he will, Raise him up on the last day. Uh, it is written in the prophets, and they will all, all means all, right? <laughs> and they will all be taught by God. Everyone, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Okay, so that's huge, right? Now, lots of people hear the gospel, but we're talking about those who have ears to hear, correct? Those who actually hear the gospel and learn from the Father come to him. Everyone, he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. Mm. He has seen the Father. Uh, And then he goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who believes this has eternal life. So that's huge, right? Yeah. Well, verse 44 is, 44 and 45, if I remember correctly, is well, really Mm -hmm. 44. It's basically the five points, right? No one can come to me. No one has the ability. No one has, he's not saying no one may. Right? No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Right there you have the limit, the limited atonement, the unconditional election. The fa- it's on the father's drawing. It's the father's good pleasure who he will give to the son. Right. Uh, they're irresistibly drawn. We'll get into that next week. And perseverance. I will raise him up on the last day. So like John 6, 44 from Jesus' mouth, this isn't, you know, to those that like to pit Paul against Jesus, which, first of all, you're doing hermeneutics wrong if you're pitting <laughs> one book of the Bible or yeah. one, one, one human author against another. Yeah. Uh, you know, you kind of messed up. But anyways, we'll come you to that. Screw it up, Aaron. Go listen to the whole hermeneutics series from our friends at Assurance Apart and, and mm. come back to us. Um, but yeah, John, John 644 is Calvinism. Like, that's the five points right there in that section. But no one has the ability to come un- to come to me. No one can come to Jesus. So even if those people that have this weird separation, over-separation between the Father and Son, right? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right. And I will raise him up on the last day, right? Yep. It's this, and there was a, that word draw, I, you don't see it behind me here, but Kittle's uh, New Testament Theological Dictionary, a friend of mine gave me a used copy of it, but in there, that word, and they're not Calvinists, the word that's translated draw here is also used in the book of Acts and I believe in Peter, um, but definitely in the book of Acts. And it is used in the context of, but it's not translated draw in the book of Acts. It's translated about how, um, and they dragged them into the street, talking about the yeah. apostles. Or they drew who, them in. They drew right. them into the, well, come on, come on. I think I'm it was, was Peter or is it James? And those that, uh, the rich that drag you into court. Yeah. But it's yeah. the same word. Yeah. So and what's happening here and what Kittle's theological dictionary defines it as is like to be compelled by irresistible or overwhelming force, basically. Well, right. So and then, that's kind and of then interesting. You, and then when you jump yeah. into the next couple of verses here, I mean, when he talks about every. So, you know, you, you've, mm. you've touched on, on most of Calvinism there in the, in the tulip portion. Um, but when he says everyone who has heard me, that that means right. Mm. 
mm-hmm. that there are people who who don't hear you and people who don't come to you. Mm-hmm. And if everyone who does hear comes to you, that that limits the atonement. <laughs> that limits the people who come to him. It definitely, mm-hmm. like you, you can't get yeah. around the fact that everyone who hears the gospel comes to the Father, yeah. uh, and well, he raises them up on the last day, which right. is perseverance. Everyone who's uh, made alive to the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. truly believes it. Well, um, we see more of that. Go ahead. If you want to read in Acts 13, I mean, we see. Oh, yeah. I got this here. This is that. Acts 13, starting in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. To just context there. There's like a whole city of people coming to listen to this sermon. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you to be a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, just before I get to the real crux here, which is verse 48, that's pretty savage. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, uh, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, like, bruh, brutal, savage, wrecked, absolutely taken down. All right. But then verse 48. So, so this is what Paul and Barnabas say, right? I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's speaking to the Jewish people. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as responded to God's prevenient grace believed, and uh, the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. Now, that's not what the verse says. The verse says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed yeah yeah now here's the thing we can do one of two things with this and i and i I say this from my own experience maybe you don't have this maybe you guys didn't struggle with this i had to decide in my own heart am i going to take this and say this is this is a hard doctrine this is harsh god seems cruel this is unfair or am i going to recognize i'll have mercy on whom i have mercy and that god would have mercy on anyone and not just that he would have mercy, but that his mercy would affect real transformation and would actually change their lives in such a way that they would come to know him and come into eternal life. And he would ensure that process and by the spirit, sanctify them and seal them and preserve them until the day of judgment and usher them into eternity so that Christ did not die in vain. That He will receive the benefit and the, and the, the, the bride that he suffered and died for. Mm. is that not more comforting is Mm. that not more joyous is that not more worthy of rejoicing and celebrating well i think too i think it's important to recognize in this limited atonement we need to recognize a couple of things number one Mm -hmm. um we need to recognize properly total depravity and that god would be just to condemn every single one of us man, woman, and child, to eternal damnation because of our sin and our sinful natures, okay? God would be just to do that. He's God. He can do what he pleases. He does what he pleases. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, when we're talking about the fact that God saves some, um, it's not as though God is being unjust. Mm-hmm. First of all, if you think God is unjust, you need to reexamine yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because God is justice by definition. Um, so anything that God does is just. So that being said, um, it's not as, so when God saves a person, we recognize that he actively works faith into our hearts and gives us repentance and faith. Okay. It's not as though he actively works wickedness into the heart of the reprobate, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't need to. They're already wicked by nature because of our rebellion. It's not as though God needs to, all he must do, uh, I love the illustration that Sproul gives, is just loose his hands. Mm-hmm. He just lets you go. Okay. One person, two people live the same life. They do the same things. One comes to repentance and faith. One does not. They both die. Okay. One is saved 
and has grace. The other one has justice. Neither one of them have injustice. Mm -hmm. Neither one of them have injustice. So that's key. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to continue in another, uh, another, um, a few chapters later in in John, John 10, um, which is awesome. Jesus again is, is uh, talking to the Jews who've gathered around him. Um, You know, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? You know, tell us plainly. Uh, But Jesus says to them, he goes, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Okay. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Okay. So God's people know him and they do follow him. Not they might, they do, they do follow him. Okay. I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, now we're seeing almost all of Tulip played out here in just a couple of verses. Um, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Perseverance of the saints. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, also, uh, just a quick side note here about Jesus' deity here. Okay? Um, <laughs> no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, he's talking about the same hand, but God's hand. But it's Jesus speaking of himself and Jesus speaking of the Father, saying that they are one, and we are in their hand together yeah. as one. Um, but anyway, that's a little side note about Jesus. Well, and- well yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, we'll get into this in Christology, but then verse 31, right? The Jews picked up stones again. That's yeah. interesting. Again, yeah. this is the first time, <laughs> to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I love this. I've shown you many good works for the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're a you're blaspheming, right, claiming they, to right, be God. Right. It is uh it is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself equal with God. <laughs> oh, Wrong. He anyways. is God. <laughs> so we'll get to that in Christology. Um, but it's all interconnected, right? That's the thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I find this unity of purpose between the Father, Son, and Spirit really compelling in a Calvinistic uh, theology in this definite atonement because no one can, you know, you're not going to take me out of my hands. You're not going to take me out of the Father's hands, right? The Spirit's mm-hmm. indwelling you. And, and I wanted to read from Romans 8 real quick. I think we touched on this briefly a couple of weeks ago, but... Um, and obviously we'll talk about Romans 9 because always, but Romans 8 is one that I find in this particular area, <laughs> it gets, it gets a little bit misconstrued. Sure. Um, and I totally did it too. So I don't say that as a, you know, puffed up, but just to recognize, right. Um, what am I picking this up is verse 28. So this is Romans eight twenty-eight. This is after talking about how the spirit helps our weakness that when we don't even know how to pray. The spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. It is beautiful. But anyways, verse 28, we'll talk about that in pneumatology. Verse 28, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then here comes the famous, what, what uh, you know, the Calvinist preachers would call the golden chain of salvation, Right. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if you go back last year and listen to our series on the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, those deal with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, right? But justification has to do with our legal standing before God. Glorification is what happens in final resurrection and final renewal of all things. And obviously, we'll talk about that in eschatology, intermediate state, heaven and hell, new creation, all of that jazz. We'll get there. But glorification ultimately represents that reunification, this resurrection bodily, and then dwelling in eternity with God, right? So we're not glorified out of the gate. That's the last step in this chain. But the chain starts way back with predestination. Now, 
Justin, maybe you could speak to this a little bit more, but I know a lot of Arminians will read verse 30, 29 and say, well, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And they will use that line and the, the grammar of that sentence to say, uh, clearly, Paul here is teaching prevenient grace. He's saying, God, <laughs> look through the corridors of time and he foreknew a people. And then on the basis of it, of foreknowing them, he predestined them based on the Well, choice. number one, that totally disregards tota scriptura, the idea of letting scripture interpret itself. However, that being said, um, it's important to understand the root of the word there for new. Um, I'm no Greek scholar or anything, uh, but if you actually look at the, at the, um, the etymology of that word in the Greek, what it's, it's, it's actually essentially a verb. Okay. It's an action that God has taken. He foreknew us. In other words, it's not like, um, he, 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 he had knowledge that he just happened to know. No, it's, it's an action that God took. He foreknew you. Mm. He foreknew us. Um, in the same way that we, when we look at, um, for example, Adam and Eve, like Adam knew his wife. Okay. Well, it's not talking about, uh, Hey, I know who you are. No, that, that was speaking specifically of Adam taking action and, and being with his wife physically. Um, it, it's something that he actually did in the same way. God foreknows who we are, who his people are. Um, and that's, that's an action that he has, has taken, um, before the foundations of the earth. Uh, he foreknew his people. Mm. Um, so that's, that's important to understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, and I think that's, I think that's something that I, I hear a lot of times like, well, if you have to, you know, go into all these great lengths to understand what the, the Greek is and all this stuff. Well, you really don't if you just read the, the Bible in context, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. if, if you read the scripture in context, a lot of this is, is clear. I mean, if yeah. uh, just like read through John six, like we just did, mm-hmm. I mean, all of this is very clear. Um, it's actually when you take the verses out of context and in the words out of context that you start getting some of these other doctrines rather than, mm-hmm. you know, all we're doing is reaction, reactionary stuff to the claims of out of context verses and words to say, sure. no, this is what it means. Well, it's like, no, it doesn't. And you know what? We'll go the extra length and we'll look at the actual word for new to, to explain that to you. Well, and also look, look at verse 28, right? Just speaking of context mm-hmm. for, we know that, for those who love God, all things work together according mm-hmm. for their or for their good. For those who are called according to His purpose, yeah. for those whom He forwarded, right? So this is the this is the flow. Yeah. It's speaking about the elect, like clearly. Yes. To those whom He forwarded, right? And I like uh, Shy Lin's song about this on his lyrical theology hip hop album, um, which is amazing. I'm not a hip hop guy, but it's even so Paul good. Washer likes it. Okay, come on, no, it's so good, so good. <laughs> Um, Shailen is a pastor and a hip hop artist and just rock solid theology, but he, he has a song on election and he talks about this. He's like, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. If he foreknew everybody, is everyone predestined? Like, in other words, based on prevenient grace, like if we're talking about just God looking through the corridors of time and foreknowing all of everything, uh, reactionary, then like, is everybody predestined to eternal life? How does this work? Right. And that's clearly not what's happening. It's like, He's foreknowing a specific people. He knows them. He knows his sheep and his sheep yeah. know him, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. But then we keep going into verse 31, right? The very famous passage that everyone likes to latch onto, but to me is so much richer with this monergistic understanding of what came before that God is uh, knowing us before the foundation of the world, predestining us in Christ, right? The father is predestining us to give us to the son, right? Conformed into his image, right? We're originally created in the image of God. And then in the fall, I like what Bobbing says, right? Like we partly lose the Imago day. We still maintain our dignity, but we lose some of the glory. And where do we find it reunited? In the image, being conformed to the image of Christ in the image of the sun, which mm-hmm. is pretty crazy, right? Reunited. Yeah. And so as we're conformed to that image, we're the, he's the firstborn among many brothers, right? It's for the glory. God is, the father is glorifying the son in his people, right? It's yeah, the son is glorifying the father. It's, Beautiful. I'm getting way too far down the rabbit hole, but all theology is connected to all theology, right? And those who be predestined, he also called. Those who be called, he also justified. Those who be justified, he also glorified. And then here's Paul's response, right? So what do we say to these things? What do we do with this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, mind you, who's he writing to? The Roman believers, the elect, the church in Rome, the, the Christians, the believing ones, right? The ones who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring 
any charge against God's elect, right? So here's the question for our moralizing friends who want to make everything moralism and burden us down with the weight of the Mosaic law and crush the sheep under this law. Theonomy? (laughs) (laughs) Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I love this line. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one that died. Much more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding Mm. for us. Mind you, a few verses earlier, the Spirit's interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. The Father is the one who justifies us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or danger or nakedness or sword? And he has this quote from the Old Testament. And verse 37, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything. Like Paul is just exhausting the language here. Nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's something so beautiful here. And I know I'm jumping into it later in the acrostic with the perseverance. But for the limited atonement, he's speaking to specific people. Because obviously there are many who perish tragically who will never know this glorious grace of God because they lived in their sin and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Yeah, I think people often have this misconception that people are, who are going to be in hell are going to be wishing they were in heaven. Mm. They, they hate God. They mm-hmm. have no desire to be with him, and they won't ever have a desire to be with him. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I've always, I touched on this a few episodes ago when we, were, when we had Eric on, but I, I, I've always found it... Um, I guess since since I became a Calvinist, anyway, I've always found it interesting because I used to I used to again not be a Calvinist, but I've always found it interesting that nobody has a problem with God choosing a specific people unto Himself in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Jews, mm. for no other reason other than it pleased Him to do so. Yeah, I mean, He could have chosen anyone on planet Earth. He chose the Jews. Yeah. Why? Because, I mean that that's it. There is no other reason other than because He can. Um, and nobody has a problem with that. And then we can break out into covenant theology and say, okay, well, we recognize that the Jews were a, uh, a shadow and a type of the church. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, Justin, we and now we the have the old covenant church or the old Testament church, the old Testament saints. And, <laughs> uh, and now we have the elect, right? Mm-hmm. We have, uh, yes. that grace extended to, uh, Right all tongues, tribes, and nations, Mm -hmm. all people. When scripture talks about this grace being given to all people, it's speaking of not just the Jews any longer, but the Gentiles as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Blake, you and I are Gentiles because we are not Jews. Mm -hmm. Praise God that he has sent his son to save Mm -hmm. all the world. And we can say that as Mm -hmm. Calvinists, we can say God died for the whole world, Mm -hmm. that through his son we might be saved. Doesn't doesn't mean that every single person's going to be saved. <laughs> That's important to understand. Yeah, and as you and I both tried to emphasize throughout this episode, right? This doctrine shouldn't make us uh, dreadful. I mean, we should have holy reverence and holy fear, right? But at the same time, it should give us the deepest comfort mm. because it's not just about okay. Well, the atonement's limited. It's limited. It's limited. Well, what are we saying? We're saying it's efficacious. We're saying, yeah, the scope is limited. It's not universally applied. But at the same time, because it's not universally applied, the effect is not limited. How mm-hmm. much more glorious? Not right. a potential right. savior, not a, not a, oh, I really hope they, rep- right. I really hope they, they write me back. I really hope they don't leave me on red. <laughs> but instead, we have a savior that leaving bridge, <laughs> that bridge the gap. Jesus isn't sitting there wait at their father's right hand in heaven, twiddling his thumbs saying, I really hope they, they respond to my invitation. I really hope that they, I really hope they pick it up. Well, that's just it. Like we don't need to stress. (laughs) Like we can preach the gospel Mm. and be comfortable knowing that we've done what God has called us to do. Mm. And it's not my job to save anybody. Right. I don't need to, did I say enough? Did I do, Mm -hmm. did I, did I say it right? No, God, God doesn't need me to save anyone. Right. He's given me the pleasure of participating in the means by which he may save people. Yeah. But that's it. I, I I don't need to stress about it because right. I'm not God. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be God. Mm-hmm. And I Amen. want God to do God's work. And I want to be part of that. But yeah. I can rest comfortably knowing that God is always going to be right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, he's going to save his people. Absolutely. And I don't know who all the elect are. Yeah. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't need to know who the elect are because I know God's not going to screw it up. He's gone. Mm-hmm. Amen. Um, yeah. So I don't know. And you know what? This God that we worship, not only does he unconditionally choose to save some and, and limited number, but at the same time, a definite number, a number that is so sure and so solid in his mind and is his foreknowledge and predestination that he will absolutely bring it to bear, which means he's going to draw them irresistibly to himself. And so <laughs> next week, we're going to talk about the doctrine of irresistible grace, the eye in tulip. Um, and we'll be drinking Lagavulin 16, which holds a very special place in our hearts because that yes. was... The whiskey that we, uh, I, I was there when Justin tasted it for the first time. We actually live streamed that into the Reformed Pub Facebook group several years ago. It was a while ago. Yeah. Uh, when we were hanging out and we ended up chatting for like 45 minutes on there. And we talked about theology and pop culture. We cracked some dad jokes. And people were like, you guys should start a podcast. Well, here we are <laughs> over a year later, uh, which is crazy. So thank you all for listening uh, if you guys want to get some awesome DT swag, you can head over to shopdistillingtheology.com to get up some of our Herman Bobbing quote mugs. We're working on getting the other merch up. We have some new things coming in. The yeah, works. we do. It's super exciting. It's, it's I'm really pumped for the new merch we got coming, dude. Me and too. it's coming sooner than you think. Hopefully yeah. by the holidays. Oh. Just saying. Just saying, get yeah. some DT in your stockings. What? Oh, and you know what else is uh, that we have some stock in is our Patreons who oh. <laughs> have some stock in us by uh, joining us at starting at four ninety nine per month and getting exclusive bonus content, early release video episodes, a discount store wide in our online store, uh, extended conversations when we have them, like our Sam Ranahan discussion on covenant theology went for two and a half hours. It's epic. Also, those who join us at $14.99 per month get an exclusive Patreon mug uh, after three months being there, plus additional bonus content. We have some cool things in the works. Now, Justin, how else can people get in touch with us and find us and follow us and all that jazz? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Balake. Folks, if you want to hang out with us, get to know us, crack jokes with us, sit around the fire, maybe even slide into our DMs, join us on... (laughs) Well! I know some people who might take issue with that, but carry on. Listen, men slide into my DMs all the time. Uh, (laughs) It's not always romantic, Blake. Uh, Join us on our Facebook group, facebook.com. Search for Distilling Theology. You will find the group. Join us. We have a blast. There's theological conversations. There's whiskey conversations. Mm. There's risky conversations. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Lots of memes. Lots of good content. Uh, Probably the most mellow enjoyable, mm. relaxing, and cordial reformed Facebook group on the internet. Mm. Yep. I, I said that. that. Uh, also, check us out on Instagram at Distilling Theology. Uh, some of the coolest pictures you'll find regarding uh, coffee, whiskey, books, theology, Ooh. maybe someday Blake's face. We'll find out. Mm. You got to join to take a peek. Uh, hit us up on there. Uh, also, like our Facebook page, you'll get yeah. uh, updates, obviously, when we post our our uh, episodes and so on just go to distillingtheology.com all of our social media links are right there mm. you can also join us on patreon there um it's good it's good stuff whenever we have giveaways again distillingtheology.com happy to have you blake what else are we members of that we are well, proud to be a part of we are proud to be members of the body of christ justin but we are oh, also are proud absolutely members right. of the society of reformed podcasts this is a network of doctrinally sound podcasts from a reformed perspective justin you want to do the roll call <laughs> absolutely if you want your ears to be filled constantly with solid robust theological conversation from folks other than blake and i mm. <laughs> uh, but including but not limited to including but not limited to just dealing theology but it is uh, you definitely will hear, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will hear uh, none other than the Assurance of Pardon podcast, Bobcast, Christ in Context, Fast God Stuff, 
Reformed Brotherhood, Reformed Pilgrims, Sippin' on Theology, and the Steady Anchor Podcast. If you go to reformpodcasts.com, we always emphasize that S because the other, without the S, it's not a good website. Uh, Go to reformpodcasts.com. Your feed will be full. You will never have a bored commute again. Mm, That's quite a promise, Justin, but you know what? We definitely stand by it as uh, (laughs) uh, it may be a limited number of podcasts, but uh, it is an unlimited... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're going to need to atone for these jokes later. Oh, man, we're not papists. All right, well, thank you guys so much, as always, and we will see you next week on Distilling Theology. So, Justin, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, friends.